we've been prayed for. Look at Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. We're going to look at verses 6 through 23. The message is titled, um, A Contrast of Saviors. A Contrast of Saviors. And you will see a number of contrasts in this text. Excuse me. But the main one is obvious, which is a contrast of God versus the gods of the people. Yahweh versus false idols. And there are many contrasts in the world. I think we recognize that, that many things that we say, well, that is the opposite of, or it is dissimilar from the other thing. And there are contrasts in colors, say, for instance. Um, There's bright and there are colors that are muted. The contrast even in culture. Some cultures are quite gregarious and others are more quiet and sober. Um, surely there's a contrast in weather. I experienced it from being um, in you know, below freezing weather um, to coming back uh, to some Southern California weather. Um, or other places, obviously, the cold front of a, of a winter. And at times I've experienced it even as I grew up in Florida the offensive sort of heat of summer. And there are taste preferences that are contrast as well. Some of you have them even in this room. Some of you say, well, I'm savory. And the others are going to be what? Sweet. Yeah, absolutely. And then think about from the standpoint of topography. There are are mountain peaks and then there are the, the low valleys. That's a contrast as well. And there's another contrast, war and peace, right? Love and and hate. I mean, these are a few examples of these contrasts, and they're easily identifiable. And choosing one or the other, perhaps the exception of love and hate and war and peace, are a matter of preference. And they will not have any eternal effect on your soul. So if your Savior is sweet, doesn't matter. If you like cold weather, or if you like a person who likes hot weather, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, no effect on your eternal soul. However... And you knew that was coming, didn't you? There is a contrast, which if you choose the wrong side, there are eternal consequences. This choice is not a matter of preference, but it's it's one of spiritual sight or either spiritual blindness. You don't see that these contrasts have eternal consequences and choosing one or the other, and particularly choosing one against the other, is going to damn your soul. So it's a choice of salvation. It's a choice of saviors. And sadly, mankind, they really make that choice every day. Every day, people choose an alternative to an offer of spiritual rescue from an exclusively unique God. Every day, they say, no, uh, I know you're offering me life, but I'm going to choose death. Now, they may not think they are, but that is what they're doing. They're making a choice every day. And what do they do? They substitute these a host of, and I do say that a host of impotent alternatives without really truly knowing the consequences of those actions. And so in this passage, we return to this theme, this great and glorious theme of God making his own declaration that I am unique. I am different. I am the absolute God. And he is saying to the nations and to his people, Here is the evidence of my uniqueness, and here are the consequences of your choices. So it's especially true of Judah, of people who are exiled 
and they are in need of hope, but they are foolishly, some, choosing the saviors of their own making. So the question is, perhaps, whether it's the ancient people of Judah or even the person that's sitting next to you, the choice of saviors is the difference between hope and despair. It is the difference between life and death. So when we look at this passage, Isaiah is not simply, again, I state it to you again, it's not simply a recounting of some biblical history, but it's a mountaintop view of God's character and his plan for salvation. I mean, every passage, everything, every time you hear someone teach the word of God, preach the word of God, they're putting before you a decision, and that decision to follow God in some manner and in some way. And here the decision is that you must follow Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So this morning, as we look at Isaiah 44, 6-23, this provides more reasons to choose the sovereign creator of all things. And in doing so, you find everlasting hope. And if you've already made that decision, you must continue in one sense to trust in him, to rest in him, so that you can, according to the words of Jesus Christ, and you remember what he said, I came that you might have life and have it, what? What did he say? More abundantly. I keep resting in this unique God. I keep trusting in this unique God. I keep believing this unique God. In whatever circumstances I find myself, I rest in him. Now, the outline goes this way. It is, number one, the genuine Savior, verses 6 through 8. The genuine Savior, verses 6 through 8. The false saviors, verses 9 through 20. And then the forgiving Savior, verses 21 to 23. Now, before we dive into te- to the text, let's just ever so briefly uh, give you a, a review to put things in context again. So if you turn back to Isaiah 43, and if you were to look at verses 22 to 24, God is making these indictments against the people of God as they are in this court case, and God is proving himself right and the people wrong. And you'll notice, as we saw before, these marking words, if you will, yet, but, nor, 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 rather, he says. And so throughout, he's making indictments against the people. And indictment number one, verse 22, there's an indictment. And he says, yet you have not called me, O Jacob, but you have become weary uh, of me, O Israel. You haven't called on me. Don't pretend that you have. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. You've become weary of me. And what does that mean to become weary of God? You don't really want to serve me. You don't really want to follow after me. You don't really want to abide by my holy standards. That's become a burden to you, and that's why you are in the predicament that you are now. Indictment number two, verse 23. He says here, you have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. So they're claiming that God is saying, you've become weary of me, but I haven't. I've not wearied you with these things. It should have been something that would come from the heart. So he indicts them again. You have not worshipped me properly. You have not delivered the best to me. You've not done it with joy. Then there's another indictment. Indictment number three, verse 24. He says again, 
You have bought me not sweet cane with, with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, instead, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And notice how it begins. Um, verse 22, you've become weary of me. But he says, no, that's really not the case. Um, verse 24, you have wearied me with your iniquities. Um, so now, because now it, you're the one that are burdened. You're the one that's a burdensome because you acted against me. Your iniquities, your, your sins, they have been a weary to me, if you will, a burden to me. It is just the opposite. And then in verse 25, we see the Savior's gracious forgiveness. Verse 25, he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out all your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that great news? And isn't it interesting that this declaration of forgiveness comes after these three indictments? So you would expect indictment one, indictment two, indictment three, here, condemnation. But it isn't that. Because that's what we would normally see in a, in a court case, would we not? Um, here is the evidence number one, evidence two, evidence three. Now the jury says what? Guilty. Not the jury says, oh, let him go. We'll pay for his iniquity. What? And this is what God is saying. He is a forgiving God. He wipes out your sins. And it's the same word that would have been used in Psalm 51, 13, when David talks about wiping out his transgressions. But notice, yes, he's a forgiving God, but 26 to 28, he's also God who is justified in his chastisement. Argue your case against me. State your case that you would be proved right. Your forefathers sin, they've transgressed against me, so I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. I will consign Jacob to the band and Israel to revilement. I am going to send you away. I will forgive you, but the consequences to your actions. And then the last thing to consider is 44, 1 through 5, the greatness of God's intervention. But now listen, he says, I'm the one that formed you. Don't fear. I will pour out water on the thirsty land. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And then what's going to happen? There's going to be a revival. Then they will say, I'm the Lord's. And another will sit right on their hand belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. And what's so important is that last thought in verse 5. They will name Israel's name with honor. Because prior to it, it was not honorable. They may have claimed to be a Jew. They may have claimed to be of Israel. But they were not living honorably. Perhaps another way to illustrate it is, we may claim to be a Christian. But the question is, are we living in accord? Are we living honorably? Are we living consistently according to what we claim? And that brings us to this next major thought, which is God now goes back to court, if you will, and first, the genuine Savior. The genuine Savior. So God takes the witness stand again, and he makes the declaration of his eternal uniqueness. And because God is eternally unique, he is therefore what? He has the worth to be exclusively praised because he is an exclusive savior. So he should be exclusively praised. And he does this. How does he do this? How does he make his case 
that in fact he is a genuine savior? Well, he does it by reminding his people through his salvific titles. And notice that he says what? Notice verse 6. Thus says Yahweh, King of Israel, Redeemer, Lord of armies, first and last, God. And then he says, if you will notice in verse 8, no, God, besides me, is there any other rock? So he makes a declaration, I am this great and awesome and eternally unique God. And we know what's coming next are these false saviors. So he makes this case, why would you choose anyone but me? It makes no sense. So he is Yahweh. He is the almighty covenant keeper. And we've seen that time and time again as we spent our time in Isaiah 40. He is king. And why king? Why does he now say king of Israel? Well, this speaks to his sovereign right. As a king would have a right over kingdom to rule as he wishes. And so it is also a personal connection to Israel as well. I am your king. There's a personal connection. It almost has some sense of a fatherly tone to it, as some have communicated. I'm your king. I have sovereign right over you. I can sovereignly forgive you if I so please, but I can also sovereignly send you off to exile as I have done, and I will sovereignly, by my sovereign power, bring you back again. Then he says, I am also your redeemer. He is their kinsman. And we know this word, do we not? If you go to the book of Ruth, what comes to your mind in the book of Ruth? Um, there is a kinsman, what? Redeemer. And that speaks to the sense of uh, relations. He is that means of providing salvation. So he says, I am your champion. I'm the one that is there for you. Look at these beautiful connections. And notice what else he says. Why should I be exclusively worshipped? Why should idols not be even mentioned in the hearing of my, my, my name? Because I'm also the, the Yahweh of armies. The Yahweh of armies. And this is the first occurrence of this idea here um, for chapters 38 to 55. It's been absent to this point. And so it's in stark contrast to the vain idols of the land. Because here's the problem. You say, well, Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts, what does that mean? Think about it in context. They've been taken away to Babylon. The Babylonians have defeated them. And you would think then, well, the gods of Babylon are superior. And he reminds them, no, they are not. I sovereignly made a decision as a king because I must complete my words spoken to you, even in verse 28. I'm going to pollute the princes of the sanctuary. I'm going to consign you to a ban and Israel to revilement, I am going to send you away. Uh, Babylon cannot defeat the people of God when I so will for them to be victorious. And we know all the many stories throughout the Bible that would tell us that in fact, when God was on the side of the people of God, could anyone defeat them? No, not at all. And this, is, this idea is carried for us even into the New Testament when it says this clearly, if God is for us, then who can be what? No one can be against us. What does it matter? If it's a, a shepherd boy and five rocks, or if it's one warrior and 300? No. When the Lord is on your side, no one can defeat you. But also there is a contrast to that. 
When God is against you, then no one can help you be victorious. We must also recognize that. Make sure that we are on the correct side. Amen to that. <laughs> and this, notice what else he says. If we go back to the text, he says, I am the first and the last. So this declaration here, first and the last, I am the self-existent God. So he stands in stark contrast to these idols who were created. Just briefly, this is what we're going to see in a moment in verses 10 to 17. That who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? All of them are created. I am a self-sufficient God, self-existent God. You may remember from Isaiah 43 and 4, when we looked at that beautiful idea right there in the middle of that chiasm that God says, and I love you. And we looked at the idea of God's love. And remember, we talked about how God's love is even connected to some theological ideas. And one was God's aseity. You remember that? God's aseity. And what does it mean? That God is from self. He is the uncreated being. And the blinded mind Uh, That is a problem to them because they think, how can that be? There surely must be something, and they can continue to go back in time. And they would say, well, what created the world, and what created the heavens, and what created matter? We would all find ourselves back where and say what? God. What created him? Nothing. Now, that is difficult, to be honest, to think about that, because we so think as finite beings We so think in time, do we not? So you look right now. Okay, I have another 36 minutes to go. We look in time. Then we'll go to a service, and that service will end at a certain time, and we'll go do something else, and it's all time. And then some of us have birthdays, and we say, oh my, time is ticking away, is it not? I don't have as much time as I used to have. Do you agree with that? I was on a conversation with the brother who ministers, a graduate of the seminary ministers in Maryland, and I said, I'm going to be there in July. Maybe we can connect. And we started talking about all of our aches and pains. And he said, that's a sign that we're getting older because we're having this conversation about the things that hurt. Whereas when we are 20s and 30s and maybe even 40s as well, perhaps a part of, yeah. Yeah, we were like, pain? What is pain? What are aches? I don't know what that is. And now guess what? Because time is what? Is it ticking? So we think so much in time. But God is outside of time. This is hard for us to grasp. An infinite being. But it is true. It is. And you can rest in him. So he says, I'm the first and the last. These idols, they have a beginning. They have a creation. I'm outside of this. I'm the creator. They are the created. So he says, he, he makes a declaration of his uniqueness. And it's a thought, if you will, Colossians 1, right? Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And what does it say of Jesus Christ, that preeminent one? It says, all things are created by him and through him and for him. And then it also says, all things are held together by him. I'm the first and the last. Trust me. Rest in me. And then notice what he says, the end of verse 6, and there is no God besides me. There is no Elohim besides me. None. And he makes that declaration later, as we'll see in a moment. Then there's also verse 7 
the challenge to declaration. So he's made his own declaration. He has stood up in court, if you will. This is who I am. And then he says, okay, I challenge you to match it. This is what he's saying in verse 7. There's a challenge to declaration. Notice what he says in verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Proclaim. If you go back to 41. Go back to 41. Yes, indeed. He says in 41. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am he. And of course, that idea of I am he should conjure up thoughts of even John's gospel. And Jesus Christ is the great I am. So he says, no, proclaim it. I've made my declaration, now you make yours. And then he goes on to say, proclaim it and declare it. I'll foretell it. And what he's saying with this word, declare it, he's saying, give evidence that supports your case that you have, that you are a legitimate God. And this, again, emphasizes this courtroom setting. I've stood up. I presented my evidence. I sit down. You present yours. But they have none to present. And then he says, notice, yes. Even more, you notice the tone is, it's even perhaps a, a sarcastic tone. Knowing that there is no response, he says, yes. Let him recount it to me in order. I've ordered out the universe I've ordered out creation. I've ordered out the redemptive plan even of my people. I created them. I've ordered everything in their life. What have you done? This idea of order, the, the word can be used even um, in Exodus 40 when it talks about the tabernacle and making sure it was a, in a certain order. David, the, the idea comes up in 1 Samuel 17, 8 and 9, and, and David is challenging the Philistines. And he said, well, here are the things that should be done. Uh, bring out your um, champion, and then if he is defeated, then we'll become your servants. And if the opposite happens, then you become our servants. Put things in order. And he says, if you are true gods, lay it out for me. Let me see your plan. Then again, notice what he says. Go back to the text. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming. Now he says to them, What he's saying here is, okay, uh, Judah, you're going to serve these false gods and anyone else that would serve them. Uh, Why don't you ask those gods what's going to happen next and see how much they can tell you? You know what I noticed? Society is becoming more and more wicked. Now, we all know that, do we not? Yeah, I don't have to convince you of it. Uh, But my goodness, I was, um, it was a weather, like a weather app that I have. And now all of a sudden, you know, because if you don't pay for these apps, they want it, they advertise, correct? So I'm kind of cheap, so I don't want to pay for them. <laughs> so I'll just take the advertisements, correct? And I take the advertisement, and you know what they're doing now? These, it's this calm music, and there's this woman, and fortune telling. Do you want to know your future? Come see Sarah. <laughs> and it's, it's, I'm not kidding you. It's like that. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Where we come now that now we're advertising for witches. And all I want is the weather. <laughs> huh? Same thing. Same time. Yeah, exactly. Forecasting is about the same thing. 
<laughs> That's right. There is some science to it. <laughs> oh, science. Oh, boy. <laughs> so think about that. So he says to them, okay, you think they really know the future? Let them tell you what is going to happen to you, Judah, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and who's going to bring it about. Well, when we come back to this passage again, we will see that God knows because God is saying it is going to be Cyrus. Cyrus? Cyrus is not even born yet. That's right. The Persians? The Persians are no power yet. That's right. But I am what? I'm Yahweh. I'm the king. I'm the redeemer. I'm the Lord of armies. I am Elohim. I am the rock. State your case. Utter, utter foolishness. And you'll hear me say that again, foolishness. But that's the human heart. Oh, my. That's the human heart. Yep. Let us know the things that are going to take place. They can't do it. But here's the beautiful thing about this statement. It's not just a declaration of his uniqueness. It is, in fact, a challenge to declare, to match what God has said. But there's also the comfort of his uniqueness. Notice the comfort of his uniqueness. Notice verse 8, beautifully stated. What are the first words that come off? Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Why is that important? Because what he's done, he's declared his uniqueness. He has said to these false gods, why don't you make your own declaration? And he says, no, they cannot comfort you, but I can. How will you trust? And this is a word for all of us, even this very day. Because as we said, we continue to live the Christian life. We want to live the abundant life. And he's saying to you, even this very day, don't tremble, don't be afraid. And when we put things in perspective, it's the idea that why would I tremble or be afraid if this God is on my side, if I understand him properly, if I don't substitute any false gods, if I don't choose any impotent alternatives, surely there's no need for me to be afraid. Yeah, when we, there is someone that um, is stronger and better, we have that sense we can rest with him, do we not? I was um, recently, actually when I was in Ohio, talking about how, you know, growing up and those of us that are parents and uh, when our kids are are small, um, they think that we're surely bigger than life. And those of you that have uh, uh, kids that have grown up, they realize you're not that big, but you're still, you're big in their eyes. And I can remember times that even my son with one of his buddies and they were talking to one another. They didn't know I overheard them. And they're in there comparing dads. You know, my dad can. But my dad does this. And my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad's faster than your dad. And I thought, what a cute moment that was, right? What a cute moment. Why? Because they thought, my dad. And if anything comes near me, my dad is going to protect me. Well, you have a heavenly father. Well, you have a king. You have a redeemer. You have a covenant-keeping God. You have a rock. How much bigger is he? Rest in him. Trust in him. This is the message. So there's comfort in this. 
8. He is, interesting enough, he says in verse 8, and there is no God besides me. Uh, we know, say for instance, early Elohim, uh, plural. So in the sense that it, it helps us understand the uniqueness of God. But here, he, he uses, it's just a singular. And why, why does he say that? He is, he's trying to be very poignant here. Being very poignant to say, there is no God besides me. None, not one. But notice, if you will, have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? So he makes his own declaration. You are my witnesses. Yes, you are my witnesses. Despite your sin, you will be brought back again. And there is no God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. So he ends this section by saying, I know of none. And if God is the first and the last, then he knows all things, does he not? We, we rest in this sense of God's excellent omniscience. He is a God of, that is everywhere. He is a God that is all-knowing, and we trust and we rest in that. But rock is important. Let's pause there for a moment. Go with me to Exodus 17. Let's look at a, a couple of different places. Exodus 17. Exodus 17. And then verse 6. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. You say, well, but this is a, a literal rock that was struck. And yes, a miracle, a miracle took place. But then we know later on uh, that rock being whom? That rock being Jesus Christ. And he gives us what? The living water. Living water. Notice, if you will, go with me to, to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Um, and what does it say there in Deuteronomy verse 4? Um, no, I, let's begin in verse 8 because it, it fits the context of what we're saying in Isaiah. He says, For I, pro- I proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God, which is what we've seen, particularly in verse 6. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Indeed he is, the rock. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, and it says what? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. For even our enemies themselves judge this. And here's a contrast here. It is another way of saying uh, their gods are not like our God. Their rock is not like our rock. And there's surely comparisons of rocks, if you will. And there's some great places that I've stood upon. And I thought, this is so stable. And there's some other places that I've been on. I'm thinking, it's time to move on. It is not stable. Notice, if you will, well, it's, it's um, Psalm nineteen fourteen, uh, And what does it say there? It says, my rock and my what? My redeemer. Look at um, Isaiah. So Psalm nineteen fourteen tells us he is the rock and the redeemer. But also, if you will, look at Psalm 71. Let's look at Psalm 71. This idea of rock again. Psalm 71, verse 3. And notice what it says. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. 
you have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my what? Fortress. So when he says at the end of verse 8, he is a rock I know of none, it is, the idea communicates refuge, a place of hiding, a place of security. He is that for us. Look at Psalm 95, if you will. Psalm 95. What does it communicate there? And let's look at verses 1 to 3. It says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For Yahweh is a great God, a great king above all gods. Amen. And this is the point of Isaiah. He is the great king above all gods. He is the rock of our salvation, stability in him. Now go back to Isaiah, but not all the way to Isaiah 44. Stop at Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Look at verse 4. It says, trust in Yahweh how long? Forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Now, what is important, if you will, a part of my point to you, if we think rightly about God, then we have stability in life. We are surely on the right contrast because I want you to notice verse 3 of Isaiah 26. Notice verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Yeah, I trust in that rock. I trust in him. This is all about character. Why is character important? Well, character is important because it gives us some sense of assurance. Uh, A person with character can be trusted. They're reliable. They're dependable. Uh, Unfortunately, in our present culture, we don't put as much as we should into a person's character. We, We generally think about talents and abilities. And a person may have both. Uh, talents and abilities, but they can also have character. But often we don't think first about character. Uh, Here, what is being stated is that God is a God of character, both in this way, in his moral flawlessness and also in his limitless capabilities. Say, why is that important? God is a God of character in his moral flawlessness. We know that God is perfect. God is holy. Do we all agree? God is a righteous God, but also in his limitless capabilities. Why you say, why are you making this point, Hargrove? It's for this reason. A person may have character, but they don't have the resources. They don't have it. And a person, surely there are many people that have resources and ability and natural strength, but they don't have what? Character. And God is both. And this is why we can trust him and we must trust him. This is why he is, in fact, with this image, a rock of refuge. I can go to that rock. That rock of Gibraltar, if you will. That half dome, if you will. I can rest in him. What about the false saviors, though? The false saviors. Six to eight is important to set this up because now there is a stark contrast. The false saviors. And so these following verses really show us a a contrast between a God of eternal character and the false gods created by human hands. And what's interesting about this, you see like no other place um, 
the detail in how these false gods are made. And the reason this detail is given because it stands in such contrast to a God who speaks and it is. Um, and God said at the beginning, let there be what? Light. Light. I was just sharing with someone recently, I'm going back to the Holy Land again this year, and they asked me what were some of the most uh, um, you know, exciting or memorable moments at the Holy Land. And I thought, oh boy, number one, just going through the old city and walking through it. Wow, Christ here. And wonderful, wonderful, love it. I said another thing to me was actually going to the Mount of Olives. And you're on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking back over, you know, at the Temple Mount, and you're realizing that Jesus Christ is going to come back again, and all of this is going to be split, and all the religion that is happening is going to be wrecked, and it's going to be rebuilt properly. And I said another thing to me that was exciting, we, we went out on a boat, and um, on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a little choppy, and young people were out there, and some as others as well, I suppose, and they were doing the windsurfing, and they were catching the wind, and it got a bit choppy, even in the boat that we're in. I thought to myself, Jesus said, what? Be still. Be still. You know, wakes generally take time to, you know, if a boat goes through, the wakes come, and eventually it's big, and it's smaller, and it's smaller, and it's smaller, and it's gone. Not so at Jesus Christ. These waves that are crashing, he says, be still. And it stops. It obeys. He is that God. Abilities that are limitless. Character that is flawless. So the question about idolatry then is, why, why is it a problem? Let me give you some reasons. I break it into three parts. Number one, idolatry is shameful. It's shameful. Notice verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know. So they will be put to shame. It's shameful. See, you're fashioning a graven image. God has fashioned the heavens. He has fashioned you as a nation. God brings purpose in life. These are futile. These precious things of no profit, even their own witnesses. That is, remember, God has said, you are my witnesses. My servant is a witness. But you have these witnesses, and guess what? They don't see or know. What's the purpose then? There is none. So they're put to shame. The second reason that idolatry is foolishness Idolatry is profitless. It's profitless. Verses 10 to 17. Um, so why? Okay, the question is, why is it profitless? Well, let's consider verses 10 to 13. Who is fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are, here's the important thing, mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them come together to be put to shame. The man shapes iron with a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. And that's interesting, too, because God, throughout Isaiah and other points in Scripture, refer to God having a what? A strong arm. And I deliver them with my strong arm. And here, this limited arm of man, strong though it may be, it is not limitless. 
It is not. He says he also gets hungry and strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. There's that word again, weary. See, you're wearying over the wrong things. You're, you're creating false gods. And this is what happens. Some of you may have in your life, you came to the Lord perhaps later in life, and you wearied over sin. And, and you wearied. And you were looking for an answer. And the answer is not there. And you sort of like these people that are creating their gods. And you labor over it. You thought perhaps this will be the thing that will satisfy. Or this is the thing that will satisfy. And it doesn't. And he gives us an actual picture of someone that is trying to make a god. And what is so utterly foolish about, about it is this. And many things, obviously. Notice what it says in verse 12. He also gets hungry. Now what sort of god can you create? if it's being created by a person who gets hungry. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. And this is what God is doing. This is why you have this rather long example here to say it's utterly foolish. Why would you serve any other God except me? And he drinks no water. I'm going to create this God. He becomes weary. Did God weary when he said, let there be light? Did God weary when he said, peace be still? Did God weary when he said, Rise, come forth. No. And then notice what else. Verse 13, another shapes wood. He extends the measuring line. He outlines it with the red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with the compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it will, may sit in his house. Utterly ridiculous. And why is it ridiculous? Because ultimately this it has a flawed model. It has a flawed model. Because, see, man is the model. Man, excuse me, man is the creator, and man is the model. There's a flawed model in verses 10 to 13. No, man is the creator of the idol. And man is the example that man is creating of himself. That's utterly ridiculous. So then notice as well. Verses 14 to 17, it has, a, it has flawed material. So the model is wrong, which is it's modeled after man. Then the material is worthless as well. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. That's a reasonable thing to do. You can go to the next, Garrett. Yeah, we're two behind. There we go. Um, and so, um, notice what he says here in verse 15. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he, he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to take bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. So, utterly ridiculous. Here's a tree grows in your yard. You take a portion of it and you make a God from it and you worship it. Then notice verse 17. Half of it he burns in the fire. Also this half he eats meat and roasts, and roasts and is satisfied. He also warns himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. Reasonable. A portion of a tree is warming yourself. But another portion you do what? Verse 17. The rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. 
you say to yourself, yeah, I've read this before. But every time I read it, it's just a testimony of how wicked man's heart can be. You say to yourself, why don't, why don't people get it? Why don't they understand? Have you ever shared with someone, and maybe you're engaged with them in the gospel, and they have uh, a counter to your argument or point, and you, you share scripture with them, and they say, yeah, yeah, okay. And then we talk further, and they have a point to make, or even a legitimate question, and you counter that with the word of God. Oh, yeah, I see that now. Then at the end of the conversation, you say to that person, well, friend, why don't you repent and believe the gospel? And often it was so, I'm not sure if I can accept all of that. Oh, the wickedness of the heart, the blindness of the heart is clear. I have a tree and I let it grow. And I cut a portion of it down, and a portion of it I literally make into fire, and I prepare a meal. And the other portion, what do I do? I make it into a God, and I say, deliver me? You just chop the tree down. How much sense does that make? How much delivering power does a, a, an entity have that you essentially just destroyed? None. But that's the wickedness of the heart. It's diluted. Every time I, even now, one delusion of the heart, every time now I'm just recently making, you know, travel plans to places I'm going the rest of the year, and I go and um, Carl Hargrove, da-da-da-da-da, um, suffix, prefix, put that in, and then I go male or female, and now what, you, what do you have now? What do you see? Unspecified X, unspecified Y. Madness. That's like these people that are creating these idols. And that's an idol of the heart. Madness. And the only thing that can change it is divine intervention. So idolatry is deceptive as well. Notice verse 18 to 20. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and the heart so that they cannot comprehend. That is, here's divine judgment. You see this thought in Isaiah 6, 9. Uh, They're going to hear, but they can't hear. They're going to see, but they can't see. It's the thought of even in um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where God is going to send on them a deluding spirit so they'll believe a lie instead of the truth. And he's saying, I'm I'm judging you because you've decided to substitute me with these gods of your own imagination. Then he says, no one calls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I burn half of it in the fire. And I also bake bread over the coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. And that's the tone of it. It says you, you can't even reason in your mind what you've just done because you can't see. In verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And it comes to conclusion. That is, people who are trusting in their own resources, uh, people that are trusting in their own works, they can't say, this is a lie. Why can't I see it? They can't see it because of spiritual darkness. Our last thought, we'll finish up. The forgiving Savior. So after this long sense of, 
an indictment and, and showing how utterly foolish it is that people would trust idols, we come back again and realize that this unique God is a forgiving God. Number one, God remembers. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. So command is to remember. I formed you. Unlike these gods that people are forming, I formed you for my purpose. You will not be forgotten. I will continue to remember you. I have not forgotten you, although you thought that I had. That's not true. Then he says, he is also God who redeems. Verse 22. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This idea of cloud, if you were to look to um, Job 7 and Job 30, it talks about this cloud that comes in and it goes away. Also in Hosea, he says that you, your, your faithfulness is like a cloud that is there for a moment and then it's gone. And just like today, clouds come in and they go, or that morning mist comes and it's away, he's saying, it's as if it was never there. Then the last point, God is praised. Verse 23, shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. In the end, it's about the glory of God, is it not? How does he show his glory? By communicating that he is this great God. How does he show us his glory? By saying, idols are utterly foolish. How does he show us his glory? By saying, I will forgive you. I'm a forgiving God. We should all be thankful that he is. Amen. (laughs) Where would we be without it? Father, we thank you for these words you give us. Give us grace and mercy. Help us to take them, rest in them. Thank you for being the great God that you are. Amen.